Mike, there it is. Good morning. Um, Pastor Patty talked about how she's not going to pressure any of you. I will not. I will pressure all of you. Um, I think that we should all be doing something, right? And I always tell people, God can't possibly love you more because God is God and God loves you. But I guarantee you, Pastor Bree and Pastor Patty will love you more if you volunteer for children and youth ministry. Like, I, I think that's the, the way it goes. And I definitely will love you more um, if you volunteer for children's ministry. Uh, welcome again. This morning, we're wrapping up our series in Micah. Um, and as we've been going through this series, we've been focusing on uh, Micah 6, 8, especially the, the, the word shalom, right? We've been asking this question about what does it mean to walk humbly with God? And, and as we've been on this journey along with the prophet and he's preaching these sermons, we've been saying, what does it mean to walk humbly? What does it mean to walk being at peace with God, with creation, with my neighbor, with myself? And what does it mean, um, even though we as God's people have been unfaithful? What does it mean, even though we know God's judgment is coming for us? What does it mean when leaders and institutions let us down, when we as a society continue to prop up the very rich, um, even though they're making money off the backs of the poor? What does it mean uh, when we have no hope that we are walking humbly with God? And what's fascinating about Micah chapter 7 is it's not only the end of the, the, the book, it's not only the end of his sermons, it's the end of his career. And, and what's interesting in Micah 7, if you want to sum it up, it's, it's Micah sitting with the present, right? Uh, up until this point, it's been a public Micah, an out-preaching Micah who's saying, hey, we've sinned against God, we fell short, this is what we ought to be doing. But I think Micah 7 is kind of him retreating to his sanctuary, retreating to his, um, uh, I guess, study, right? And, and it's all hitting him. And, and that, that resonates, right? Because I think a lot of times you can preach something and be up front, but then you got to sit with it sometimes, right? And so Micah is sitting with it, and, and, and then where he sits with, um, it's kind of hard when you start in chapter 7. Because what he sits with is as he looks around at, at the sin, again, for generations, for hundreds of years, right? As a ministry of probably 10, 20 years of, of trying to get these people to turn it around, when he looks all around him, he's miserable, and he sees his country, and he, he thinks that's miserable. And, and so he starts off with this all-around misery. But what's beautiful about Micah chapter 7 is God moves him from misery to hope. And the, the, the kind of turning point for Micah is the realization that, yes, things are miserable. Yes, things are dark. Yes, things are broken. But how can I have hope in God? I have hope that God is faithful. And, and so Micah then, as we work through the whole chapter, realizes that, hey, we have not been faithful but thank God, God is faithful. We have fallen short, but praise God, God is faithful. We have left tons of good left undone. We've oppressed one another, but praise God, God is faithful. And, and so when Micah then stops looking at himself and how miserable he is, right, and stops just looking around him and sees how broken and dark everything is, when Micah looks up, he realizes that God is good, that God is faithful, and that it's God and God alone that he can put his hope in. And what does that hope come from? It comes from knowing not just an idea, but knowing that God's presence is promised. How amazing it is that no matter how far away we feel from God, no matter how miserable we feel right now, no matter how broken we feel or how dark the world feels, God promises presence with us. God promises to meet us in the hour of misery, to meet us in that place of despair, 
to meet us when we feel alone. God promises presence. And not only does he promise presence, but he gives us all these blessings. And when you get to the end of Micah chapter 7, you see the prophet who's so miserable about everything around him, who's so broken and dark, finding again his God of hope. And when he finds that God of hope, the only thing that's left to do is to pray and to praise. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of Micah 7. And that's where we're going to end this morning. If you have your Bible, turns with me to Micah chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 14 to 20. We'll also have it up front so you can follow along there as well. Micah chapter 7, starting at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago. As in the days when you came up out of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. What a blessing we have that no matter what misery we feel, what darkness we can't hide from, what despair we live with. Our God promises presence, and our God promises to be with us and to move us to prayer and praise. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you this morning that you are faithful. We thank you that you've been there for us, that you promised never to leave us nor forsake us, that you promised to meet us in that hour of despair, in that place of no joy, in that brokenness, in the darkness, Lord, you promised to be light. So God of hope, we ask for your hope this morning. We ask for your strength this morning. Lord, we pledge ourselves to you, grateful that you have pledged yourself to us. Help us to not only be able to look at ourselves truly and vulnerably and honestly, help us to not only be able to assess the world around us and, and the darkness and the brokenness and everything around us, but help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to find our hope in you, the hope that drives us today, prepares us for tomorrow, but a hope that reminds us that in all things, you are working, you are moving, you are good. God, who's the God of all faithfulness, we pray this morning that we can not only know your hope and hold on to your hope, that we can respond with lives of prayer and praise and worship to you. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. Here in Micah chapter 7, the prophet is again inviting God's people to sit with the present. What I love about this again is that everything so far is Micah in the public sphere. He's preaching and calling the people back to God. But again, as he reaches the end of his career, where he begins in chapter 7 is to stop and to look back. And when he looks around him, he is miserable. He sees his country as miserable. He sees it as broken. And then some of the analogies he uses here kind of flesh out the, the 
of the misery that he feels, right? He talks about how the work that they've done yields no good fruit. And the idea of that was, you know, at the end of the year, at the end of the, I guess, the farmer's year, you would have the last harvest, right? So the last harvest, you would know that for months now, you're going through a dry season. That for the months to come, there's no more new fruit, no more new harvest. So people would have that in mind. And not only would the people go and harvest, but there was gleaners who would come and kind of glean away and take everything. So Mike is saying, not only do I feel miserable, this is almost as if I've showed up after the farmers have done harvesting, after the gleaners have done gleaning, and there's nothing left for me. I think that's a fascinating way to look at the world because he sees the sin of his people as, as so bad and so detached from God that there's nothing he can do to get fruit. And that, that work that he's done, it's yielding no harvest. And so that's why he's hungry. He says not only do our work yield no harvest because we've taken it all away, but our bellies stay hungry. And I like that, right? Because the hunger he's speaking of isn't just, oh, I missed breakfast this morning, so my stomach is growling, right? But think about this. If it's the last harvest and you have months to go before the next even planting, much less harvest, you know that you're not only hungry now, but you're going to be hungry for a while. Now, most of us don't like to miss meals. I'm included, right? I feel like you should add meals, not miss meals, right? But, but the idea that he's saying here is like, because of how far we are away from God, because of what we're doing, we have this hunger that can't be felt. And I think some of us have felt that looking at our world, right? We have this unsatiating quest or this unquenchable quest or this, un, this, this unrelentless or this relentless hunger that we just can't get through, this endless hunger, and so he moves from, listen, we're so far from God and things are so dark that there's no work we can do that we can see fruit. We're so far from God that we're hungry and nothing can fill it. And then when he looks around, he sees that the faithful have all gone. And it breaks his heart. You know, when I was a kid, they used to say only good die young. And it sounds cool until you think about it. You're like, well, if only good die young, <laughs> what's the rest of us? Because essentially we're saying we're not good, the ones who are left. The person who kind of uh, crystallized this in my mind is an artist by the name of Ben Harper, who's one of my favorite, probably, probably my favorite artist, right? Uh, and, and he has a song called Pleasure and Pain. And I, I think this would be his, mod, or at least my interpretation is, this is his modern interpretation of Micah 7, right? How do we move from misery to hope, right? But in that song he says, how I wonder why the world can be so cold. And if only good die young, then left with me cruel here to grow old. And that's essentially what Micah is saying here. The faithful have gone. And if the faithful have gone and the remnant is gone and washed from the land, what are we left with? We're left with the unfaithful, yes. But if the good have gone, we're left with the bad. We're left with the bad. And, and so if we have a, a work that yields no fruit, a, a hunger that can't be filled, the good people who are pointing us to God, they've all gone. What's left? What's left is the ruined fabric of society. And you'll see here in the chapter where he talks about there's no trust, there's no honor. There's no trust among people. There's no trust or brothers and sisters, husband and wife. There's no trust, there's no honor within his culture. And so all of this brings you to a point to kind of understand why he's miserable. And so I think for, so far when we've been talking and preaching through Micah, we talk about all the things that people have done. But here you feel the weight of the prophecy falling on the prophet, 
right? Like he's been preaching for so long where, where God's judgment is coming, we're doomed, we're falling short, that it's all now hitting him as he looks around. But where does hope come from? When you get to Micah 7, 7, it's a verse I think everyone should memorize, right? It's a verse I think that, like, I don't know if it's cool enough, but you can get a T-shirt. When you go home today, you should print a T-shirt of Micah 7, 7, put it on your chest, right? And the reason I think this is beautiful is because as he's looking all around, as he's looking inside, he's miserable. But then hope comes from the Spirit, and the Spirit compels him to say, as for me. I want you to hold on to this. As for me, even though we're miserable, even though we're broken, even though there's darkness all around us, even though things are not as it should be, even though this is not what I dreamed, even though we are not following God, as for me, I will watch and hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. I will be well. Why? Because God hears me. How beautiful it is that we have a God that no matter how far away we feel, he promises to be near. We have a God that no matter how miserable the world is, our family is, we ourselves are, he promises to be with us. No matter how dark it seems, he promises to hold our hand and walk us through that darkness. And Micah then, when he starts to remember that he needs to hope in the Lord, he says, I will hope in God and God alone. I will wait for God to save me. I will be well because God hears me. Then he starts to remember God's faithfulness. And when he starts to remember God's faithfulness, he starts to trust God's promises. And it brings him to a place where he's able to say, I am down, but not out. I'm in the dark, but God's light. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's one of the, 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 the preeminent scholars, not just in theology, but I would say philosophy and life, right? He was a, a, a Jewish man who was in Europe during Nazi Germany and saw his family suffer so much. But yet he held on to the faith of the God of the Old Testament. And he was so moved that when he came to America, he saw another group of people, an African-Americans, who were oppressed in America. And a lot of the civil rights leaders actually went to him, and he mentored them in the way of how to be faithful when you are being oppressed. But what I love about Abraham Joshua Heschel was, was, was not just the, the outworking of his faith, the theology and the insight he gives us into the prophets. Speaking of Micah 7, he says this, Micah, not just talking about the darkness, he says, Micah helps us in how to accept and bear the anger of God. The strength of acceptance comes from the awareness that we have sinned against him and the certainty that anger does not mean God's abandonment of us forever. I want you to hold that this morning. When we sin, God is angry. When we hurt one another, God is angry. When we oppress one another, God is not pleased. When we leave good left undone, God is not pleased. But God's anger does not mean abandonment. God's anger is this anger not at you, but at injustice that you're doing or are upholding, right? He says, the certainty of God's anger does not mean God's abandonment of us forever. Why? His anger passes, his faithfulness goes on forever. God will be angry at every injustice, at every sin, but his faithfulness goes on forever. How do we know this? Because there's compassion in his anger. When we fall, we rise. Darkness is not dismal. When we sit in the darkness, God is our light. I love that. I love that because he's saying we're down, but we're not out. 
Even when we're miserable, God promises to be with us. And if we're living and sitting in this darkness, guess what? God is our light. Not only leading us out of darkness, but pointing us to more light. When we sin, God pleads and upholds our cause. I think there's so many of us who still have this idea of God as the angry God. We love Jesus, right? And we say, well, Jesus is the mediator between God and man, right? Jesus is the mediator. So we sin, and Jesus died on the cross, and he's a, that's good, and that's true. But guess what also happens in the Old Testament? The same God who goes angry at sin of injustice, the same God who goes angry at you sinning against him, is the same God who promises to what? To plead and uphold your cause. Think about that for a second. God is angry at you. He's angry at your sin. He's angry at the injustice that you're causing and propping up. Yet instead of taking it personal, he says, you know what? I still believe in you. I will still work with you and in you and for you. I will uphold your cause to me. When someone angers me, I'll tell you a confession. I don't want to work on their side for their good. Right? When someone angers me, I'm thinking about, you angered me. I'm not going to put you in a position to anger me anymore, right? Or, or sometimes I want a little pound of flesh. But I'm an Anabaptist, so I just, and from Central Pennsylvania, so I just passive aggressively pray for them. You know? But when we anger God, he not only forgives us, but he pleads on our behalf. And he fights for us. That's the God we serve. We sin, yet he pleads and upholds our cause. Why? Because God is on our side. But then Micah does what we all have to do. We come off the mountaintop, right? Because, you know, when, when you're, again, when he's looking at himself, he's miserable. He's looking at the world, he's miserable. He's looking at God, he gets hope, right? But it's hard for us to keep focus on God. So he starts looking around. And he says, but God, there's enemies all around me, right? And if I was writing a commentary in the Johnson uh, commentary on Micah 7, this would be the section we call haters are going to hate, right? It's theological. It's true, too, right? Like Micah's looking around. He's like, God, I know everything's good, but there's still enemies all around us. But yet, as he even processes that out loud and you go through chapter 7, he still gets to a point, though, where he recognizes, if I stand up for what God called me to do, if I'm fighting for the oppressed, for the least of these, or those society leaves behind, if I'm on the side of God and his people, I may not be the most popular figure. But that's okay, because God's got me. And I think we need to kind of, and again, I think some people hear this and they're just like, well, haters are going to hate. People aren't going to like me, so I'm just going to do everything. God doesn't have a desire for you to be hated. I think there's some Christians who think that, like, if the world hates me, then I'm following Jesus, right? The more I'm hated, I'm like, how do you tell people about Jesus if they hate you? You know, like, it's just like, I think there's Christians who wear as a badge of honor, right? Like, they hate me. I must be doing something right. That's not what Micah is saying. He's saying, if you fight for the least of these if you fight for the marginalized, you're not going to have to wonder about who hates you. The powers that be will hate you. You don't have to go around trying to get everybody angry at you to show your faith. You just have to be faithful. But if you're faithful, even when you do meet that anger and resentment and the fighting back from the forces of darkness even, even when you meet all that, God's got you. God is on your side. And redemption is coming. And so that's how Micah moves from misery to hope, by stopping from looking around and looking inside to looking up. And then by remembering God's promises and remembering that the redemption to come 
is what God is going to do. And then we get to verse 14. We get to our passage here where Micah then is going to say, this is the response of us as God's people. And I love that after this whole movement from misery to hope, he starts in verse 14 by saying, God is our shepherd. And he's not just quoting, you know, the great King David, right? He's not just talking about the fact that God promises to protect us, to provide for us, to, to, to make sure we have peace. He's not just talking about how the God promises to be there for us. He's talking about how God promises complete restoration. And he mentions two places, right? He mentions Gilead and Bashan, right? And, and these were places that they would have lost to Assyria, right? And this struck me this week. My daughter is super into gymnastics now, right? So everywhere in the house is a, a tumbling gym, right? Like, like the floor exercise is everywhere. The, the, the beam is everything that has any height on it. And, and needless to say, she's learning. And when you learn, sometimes you tumble and fall. And, and, and so because I'm such a gracious father, I try not to laugh in her face, you know? I don't. I'm good. I laugh when she leaves the room. But so she comes to me this week, and she fell and scraped her hand, right? And, and so it was an interesting scrape because it was one of those that was big enough for no Band-Aid in the house. And we have like a series of Band-Aids. Like we have so many different, but it just didn't fit all of them. And as I was putting on the Band-Aid and, and thinking and reflecting on Micah, I realized something. That when she needed healing, I had Neosporin. But my Band-Aid didn't even fit. I had to patch it together. But what's fascinating about our God is that when we're broken and bruised, God doesn't have to patch us together in the sense that he needs to put three band-aids to fit it, right? We have a God who promises complete restoration. We have a God who promises complete restoration. I want us to hold on to that this morning. So when we say the world is not as it should be, we also, out of the other side of our mouth, need to say, but one day it will be. When we say, I'm not who I should be, we need to, on the other side of our mouth, say, but one day I will be, right? God promises complete restoration. For Micah, it was like, listen, we've lost these lands, but one day it's coming back. And for us in this room, we can say, this is where I've fallen short. But one day I will be made whole. And that's what God promises as our shepherd, not just to provide, to protect, to give us peace, but to completely restore us. And then Micah says, God is going to show us some wonders. And I love that, right? Because what he's talking about isn't just Egypt. You know, I, I love that as Christians, Egypt is kind of like our cross, right? It's where it begins. And we love the idea of the cross because that's where we enter into our faith. That's where we meet Jesus as God meets us. We ask forgiveness of sins. We enter into the relationship. But just like with the cross, God's relationship with his people doesn't end in Egypt. In fact, it starts even before they leave Egypt, doesn't it? It starts when God has to show that he's more powerful than all the Egyptian gods. It starts when God has to call Moses when Moses isn't even ready. And it starts, like God not only pulls them out of Egypt, but what happens after Egypt? That's just the beginning. They still got to go through the wilderness. They still need a cloud by day and a fire by night. They still have enemies to defeat. They still got complaining to do, according to them, right? But God is able to take them on this wilderness journey. And it's a reminder to us that when God says, I will do wonders, it's not just about the cross for us. Aren't you grateful that God's wonders didn't just stop with him saving you that time you chose to follow him. 
Aren't you grateful that as you look at your life, right? Hopefully it's not a wilderness, right? Hopefully you had some joy along the way, right? But as you look at your life and you look at that journey, you have been moving towards God. But what's amazing about that journey towards God is that every step of the way, God has been with you. Every step of the journey, God has been with you. So the wonders that God promises doesn't end on the cross. It might start there for some of us. But if you look at it in the whole time, and we've talked about this before, right? You may have chosen to, to follow God this day and time. But what about the person who inspired you to do that? What about the Holy Spirit that lived in your heart and came and revealed that to you? What about the community of faith that had been investing and praying in you? What about your parents and your family? There's so much that went into that moment that you think you made that choice to follow God. And as you go through this journey, God is with us. And then Micah does something that I think is beautiful too. Remember, he's one of the few prophets that points to the Messiah coming. It points to a day where Jesus will come again, and Jesus will, will, will be the Messiah. And maybe he doesn't know it's Jesus. You know, he just knows this Messiah will come. But in the midst of all this about God restoring Israel and God showing wonders, he hits them and he says, God will also make all people and all nations bow down. Aren't you grateful that our God is for the world? Our God isn't just for us here in Harrisburg. <laughs> I mean, I love that he's here in Harrisburg, right? But our God isn't just for us here uh, in America, for us here in the Brethren in Christ. Our God is for the world. And there's going to come a time and a place that when God's restoring everything, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, every high is going to be made low. The powerful themselves will bow before the Lord. And it's in this space that Micah then stops and pauses, not only about the God who shepherds us, the God who does wonders in our lives, the God who makes nations bow down, but he remembers verse 18. And I want to read that to you, because I think this is, this is this beautiful prayer that he ends with. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Again, our English betrays us there a little bit because the mercy he's speaking of there is hesed. And you've heard me speak about this, right? Hesed is, is, is in the New Testament, it shows up as agape. In the Old Testament, it's, 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 it's God's covenant love for his people. God always working for your good. God always being on your side, right? And what's beautiful is this is the same verse that shows up in Micah 6, 8. What does God require of us? But to do justice, to be just as God is just, to, do, to, to love hesed, right? To love the way God loves and to walk in shalom, walk in peace with God, right? But what he says here, and I want us to hold on to this, you do not grow angry, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. It's amazing God pardons sin. It's a blessing that God forgives us. But may we always remember that God delights, delights in showing mercy, in showing hesed. And the idea of covenant love is God is willing to love you in your language. I think that's beautiful. I think that's what true love is, right? If my true love, right, for example, is you making me jerk chicken and you choose to bring me carrots, do you really love me? It's a question I ask myself all the time. You might think you're loving me, but if it's not in the way I receive love, is it truly love, right? Is it just you feeling better about yourself, you know? Like if you really love me, you're like, here's some kale. Is that love? 
is that love? I'll leave that for you to figure out. But the point is God is always willing to love us in the way we can receive love. And this might be foreign to us, right? But one of the ways they received love was in this covenant language. They were a covenant people. And the closest we have today is the marriage covenant, which we don't really think of marriage as a covenant, right? We, the last 300 years, we, we invented this thing called romantic love, which is great and amazing. But for the rest of the world, like, they don't know what that is, right? But they're a covenant people. And I think the closest we have to covenant language is what I like to call the mortgage covenant, right? That's when you, you buy the house you're still buying. But if you don't pay the payment every month, they kick you out of the house you think you own. Like, that mortgage covenant. And so God uses this language to say, listen. My love for you isn't just automatic because I'm God. My love for you is so great that these are the things I'm pledging to do for you. And, and so he, he asked then, it's like, what is your covenant? What is your responsibility to me in this covenant, right? And so when God promises said, when he promises covenant love, is this reminder that his compassion and love will always be greater than our sin. I think that's something that we need to hold on to because the sin that so easily ensnares us isn't just the sin that we do, but it's us feeling that we don't belong or it's us feeling that we'll never be good enough or it's us feeling that, you know, I'm so bad. How can God love me? Or I've done such a bad thing. How can God love me? Right. But God desires to show mercy and the way he's going to show mercy to you. Or one of the ways is going to remind you that my love is greater than your sin. And when Micah works through chapter seven here, he also says that God's covenant love and promises is even greater than the sin we see in the world. It's hard to believe that when all you see is darkness. But Micah wants us to hold on to that God's purpose is to redeem and not destroy. How much do you love that about God? That he's in the redemption business. He's in the restoration business. Even this earth, right? There's so many of us who look at the earth as like, well, it's just going to burn up one day. No, it's not. <laughs> Read Revelation, right? Heaven always comes down. God promises restoration of all things. Of all people, God desires that none should perish because his purpose is to redeem and not destroy. And part of this covenant love is God's faithfulness, not just to Micah, not just to Israel, not just to Judah, but for generations. Pastor Bree read earlier some of the verses in Genesis 12, I think 17, there's also 15, about God's covenant with Abram. And what's beautiful about God's covenant with Abraham is that, yes, the Jewish people come out of him, but Abraham wasn't even a Jew. <laughs> like, I think that's, that was, ever since I was a kid, I was like, this is interesting. They didn't say Father Abraham, but I don't know if Abraham would have considered himself a Jew. That's just me, you know? But when God makes this covenant with Abraham, it's not just for Abraham. It's not just for his sons and daughters. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for the world. And so when God makes this promise, it's like, yeah, through you, the world will be blessed. And so Micah is able to see not only God's plan for the world, but how when God's people are faithful, they become a blessing. And a blessing is that Messiah came. But a blessing is what Isaiah also said, what? My house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, but we as Israel should be a light of the nations. So when the Messiah does show up and he says, what? You are the light of the world. It's connecting all these things that God calls his people to be faithful. And one of the ways God is faithful is us being faithful for generations. And I love that because the scriptures also in the New Testament tell us what? When we shine our light, people will see and glorify our Father in heaven. 
So what do we learn about God's faithfulness? A lot. But I want to leave you with these four things I think is good to hold on to in Micah 7. The very first one is we have to be willing to sit with the present if we want to get through today. In addiction, they tell you, right, one of the first steps is admitting who you are and what you struggle with. And I think if we're not willing to be honest and vulnerable with God, if we're not willing to not just see the brokenness out there, right? Then, you know, so, for example, it's like if I broke my arm, my forearm, and, and I come to you for help, and you're like, hey, let me help your fo- broken forearm. I was like, my arm's not broken. You know, at some point, you might get a little frustrated at me. You know, at some point, you might be like, your arm's broken. You need to deal with this, right? If we're not willing to do that work, right? Micah is not just miserable, but he's sitting with the present, He's sitting with the true reality of the world he's living in. We have to ask God to help us have eyes to see the misery, the darkness, the brokenness, but not just in the world, also in ourselves. Because if we're willing to do that work, God can work with that. But if we're walking around with broken forearms and we can't even convince ourselves it's broken, it's a little harder for God to get through. So Micah invites us to sit with the present, to be honest and vulnerable before God and say, God, I'm miserable. Or God, this is awful. Or God, this is what I've done. And this is where I'm broken. And this is where I need you. And if we're willing to do that, God works on it by giving us hope for the future, by giving the strength that readies us for tomorrow. Because if we're willing to be vulnerable with God and confess our sins and confess our brokenness, God not only meets us there, but he picks us up and he pulls us out and he grows us. And this is why we trust God, because he's faithful. Soren Kierkegaard, who is a a brilliant theologian and philosopher, says this. I think this is important as we think about vulnerability and and brokenness and, and trusting God. He says, a person needs to know that even if all other people give up on them, indeed, even if they were on the verge of giving up on themselves, God is still the God of patience. And that's why we got to be honest and vulnerable and truthful. Because when we're willing to be honest and vulnerable and truthful, God doesn't give up on us. And maybe we've done things that have broken other people and broken ourselves and, and caused God to be angry. But God's anger does not last. And he desires to give compassion and mercy and healing. And so our part is to trust God. Ella Baker, who's a civil rights activist and one of my favorite people of all time, right? She says, give light and people will find a way. And I love that because if God is light and God is offering God to us, that is the way. And it's not just Jesus being philosophical saying, I am the way, the truth, the light, right? It just seems like intangible. Like what God is saying is that if you're in the dark, but you're willing to be honest and vulnerable and truthful, I will see you and I will guide you out. And it might not be snap, snap happen, but just know I'm with you even now. And so God is going to do God's part. So then the question becomes, what is our part? I think our part is to pray, is to praise, and is to live lives of worship. Micah has this whole book where he's talking about the sins of the people, the sins of the nation, of the society, of himself. He has this misery of all the world that's around him, but he finds hope, taking his eyes off himself, taking his eyes off his world, planting his eyes up in God, 
and then remembering the promises of God. Remembering that God is a God of restoration. Remembering that God is a God of journey. Remembering that God is the God who's with us. Remembering that God is the God who's faithful. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close singing a song that's kind of familiar to us. We've sang a bunch of times here called Promises. And any of the pastors in the room, I'd like to invite you up to, to come up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything else you've got going on. But as we sing this song, you know, I don't know where you are this morning. You know, if we had a scale, I don't know where you are on the, the misery to the hope, right? The despair to the joy, the, the darkness to the light. But I know that wherever you are on that scale, God is with you. And God promises to be with you. And if you're willing to be honest and vulnerable and truthful, God will take your hand and not only walk with you, but lift you up and pull you out. And the promises of God is that the God of Abraham is the God of us. Is the God of the universe is the God of you. And this God who promises to be faithful and there will not only move you from misery to hope, but will do it with great, great joy. Let's stand and sing together. promises time and time again you have proven you'll do just what you say though the storms may come and the winds may blow I'll remain steadfast and let my heart learn when you speak a word it will come to
bit of trouble, not with any of you, but with the real boss, Jesus. Because um, I said something about how I feel like God in the Old Testament is obsessed with helping you remember, right? Like, it's like anything happens, he's like, build a stone, build an altar, build a temple, remember, right? And I talk about how it just seems like God forgets that, right? It's funny, right? Like, he wants us to remember, but he forgets to tell us that in the, the, the New Testament. So then as I was going through Micah 7 this week, God helped me remember a lot, you know, and one of the ways that God reminded me that he helps me remember is by, by thinking about times of year. So as I thought about us leaving today, I wanted to invite you to think about, you know, maybe it's this week or this season or your entire life. You know, what is one promise that God has given you, right, that has kind of led you through your days, that led you through your wildernesses to, to joy, from misery to hope? What is one promise of God that you've held on to? And I was reminded of that because we're now in September. Right? And every September, I get very, very contemplative because when I was uh, nine years old in September 1992, I came to this country. I got on a, a plane by myself and flew from, from Abidjan to Dakar, from Dakar to JFK in New York, right? And people were like, how'd you do it? I was like, I don't know. I didn't know any better, right? But what I took with me on that trip and that journey was God's promises that what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when I was 21, uh, I, 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 when I, well, even before then, right, I had a lifetime of God saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, September also reminds me when I moved to Harrisburg 15 years ago, right, where I came where my faith with God was okay, but my faith with the church was broken. My faith in Christianity was broken. And I needed to do a lot of healing. And even though I felt like me and God were okay, and I didn't think me and church would be okay, God still said to me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And, and we're in September now, so we're close to the fall. And it's almost four years since I've been senior pastor, which is very, very interesting, right? Like to go from one of the staff to, to senior pastor is tricky. To go from a church where people have seen you in a role to adapt a new role is tricky. And, and, and so like Micah, you know, I've had a lot of public moments, but also that private moments of heaven. And God says what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's what I'm holding on to, not just this week, but for my life. But as we get ready to go into the world, what is one promise that God has given you that keeps showing up over and over and over again? Because that promise being true, it's a reminder that our God is faithful. Amen? Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Though we fall short, Lord, you never do. Though there's so much we leave undone, you complete everything you've started. Though we aren't faithful, we praise you that you're so faithful and good to us. 
So God, we pray that no matter where we are this morning, on the pendulum from misery to hope, and the pendulum from despair to joy, from darkness to light, help us to be reminded that you promised to be with us and you are with us wherever we are. So God, if we're far, draw us near. God, if we're confused, give us clarity. God, if we're overwhelmed, help us to stay overwhelmed so we can rely and trust in you and you alone. God, we just pray that as we depart, that we can be people who are grateful for your promises. Help us to call to mind and to remember all the ways you've been faithful and true and merciful and good and loving and kind and compassionate. Lord, help us to remember your goodness. Because in remembering that goodness, Lord, we can not only take an honest assessment of where we are, of what we're doing, where our world is, but we can be vulnerable with you. And in that vulnerability, Lord, you can heal us, you can meet us, you can grow us, you can hold us. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. For this morning and this day, we're grateful for your faithfulness, your mercy, your peace, and your love. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.